All right. It was a great conference, and uh, we were blessed to have a, n- a number of our people there at the conference. And <clears throat> that was uh, one of many highlights uh, in the conference. I have up there the uh, website uh, for this organization, which we have gotten involved in, uh, thegospelcoalition.org. I don't know if you have some sites that maybe you go to multiple times during the week, maybe even during the day. This is a site that I go to probably two or three times a day. Uh, it is regularly posting really interesting articles, doctrinal, philosophy, whatever it may be. And I just would love it if uh, my, my congregation was regularly accessing great resources, and I don't know of very many better on a kind of daily basis than this one. So as you're taking notes, maybe for tonight's message, would you write down thegospelcoalition.org and just get it in your favorites on, uh, on your web browser and just go to it on a regular basis. It will be a blessing to you. It's a tremendous blessing to me. I also wanted to share with you that last week we... Uh, we, we announced that we were establishing kind of like one week to give towards the Marv Troyer Scholarship uh, Fund. Marv Troyer was the uh, former pastor here at Bethel, passed away two weeks ago. And so in his honor, we established this scholarship for uh, young men that are training for pastoral ministry. And I just want to share with you, we collected right around $17,000 this week towards that scholarship. So I want to thank uh, those of you that gave towards that. And we look forward to giving it out and uh, being a blessing and and, uh, doing it in Pastor Troyer's name. Final thing before we get into the message, you're like, wow, here it is the week before uh, Easter. We haven't even talked about Easter. Well, that's what I'm going to do right now. Okay. And um, first of all, I just want to walk through the um, schedule for this coming weekend. Uh, This coming Friday, Good Friday, we are having two Good Friday services, five and 630. And the purpose of our Good Friday services is for believers to remember what Christ did on that, on that Friday, dying for us. And so it is um, a very reverent service. It is a more quiet service. We will have communion together. In other words, this is not a service for you to invite uh, your unsaved friends to. This is more for, for Christians remembering what Christ has, what Christ did for us. And that's, again, Friday, 5 o'clock. And 6.30, it's approximately a one-hour service, and um, that's Friday. So let's talk about Easter, okay? Next Saturday, we will have a 4.30 and a 6.15 service. So you Saturday night folks will have to decide which one of those two that you're going to go to. 4.30, 6.15 on Sunday, 8, 9.30, and 11.15. And we've mentioned this before that... Uh, typically that 9.30 on Easter Sunday is uh, especially difficult to get everybody in. And so if there's a way that you could uh, avoid that one, if possible, that would be a help and might put a parking spot for somebody and a seat here. Uh, maybe a few, if your family went to a different service for uh, somebody else who comes. Tremendous amount of work goes into Easter. We've been working on it since November, and uh, it's a big, it's a big, big weekend. So 
You haven't been working on it since November, though, have you, most of you? You're just, like, looking forward to it. And you're like, well, I don't know, what what ministry can I have? There are some things that we want to ask you next weekend in particular to do. And this is a familiar list. We go through this almost every year. And uh, some of these will sound familiar. Number one, please come early. Now, that's always a good idea. Always a good idea. But especially this weekend, if you come like right at the last minute, we, you're, people running in, kids getting checked in, it's so helpful if you're able to come, get, be here 15 minutes early. You know what? Be here 20, be a half hour, whatever it is. Be here early. It helps us get uh, the whole thing pulled off. Secondly, uh, please park far. Now, again, this is something we ask every weekend. It's not as critical at the Saturday night service for us typically. But uh, for Easter weekend, why not make a space close for somebody that might be visiting and you, one of the regulars, why don't you park a long ways away? And you're like, well, I don't know why I should have to do that as my church and I'm going to park where I want to park and all this. (laughs) There's a famous story of Charles Spurgeon who uh, one service, the place was packed out. And there were thousands of people outside who wanted to come in. And he got up and he said, all right, whenever you're a member of this church, just leave right now. Okay, you already know the Lord. Just go. And let's make room for somebody who needs to hear the gospel. And the people got up and they left. And to me, that's the gospel spirit. So uh, uh, none of that attitude. I was just mocking. Let's have the right spirit. (laughs) Third, sit close. Sit close. And please do not sit on the aisles. That makes everybody crawl over you. Come, move down the aisles, sit next to people. Do not leave that little comfort seat between you and the next person. We need to pack the seats out. And then uh, finally, do I need to put that up there? I mean, you would think that this would just be the normal thing for Christians to have sort of this like, I'm here to see who I can be hospitable to and who I can welcome, smile, greet, say hello. Have you, have you been here before? First time. Isn't Easter wonderful? Where are you from? Are these your children? They're so cute. Uh, you know, I, if you have any questions about the church afterwards, I'd love to talk to you. Have you seen around the place? I'd love to show you around. Let's get a cup of coffee. You know, back in the olden days, people would sometimes even invite people to lunch. So... I don't know. Maybe something like that could happen. But the point being, Christian hospitality uh, is a display of Christian love. And if you can't do it here, you're never going to do it out there. So it better be going on right here. And there's no better weekend to have it going on than Easter weekend. And I would add this finally. It's not up there. Maybe it should be. will be tomorrow. (laughs) Please be in prayer. We will present the gospel to more people this weekend than any other weekend of the year. And if I might quote Charles Spurgeon again, they asked him, what's the secret to your success? He said, my people pray for me. So let's be in prayer, okay? And let's see what God does. We're excited. It's the best weekend of the year, bar none, and we're going to go for it. (laughs) We're going to go for it. A few moments ago, I read in uh, Matthew the account of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. This is known as his triumphant, triumphal entry, famous as Palm Sunday. 
named that because of the palms that were waved before him and placed before him as he came in. And this whole scene was symbolic of the fact that Jesus as the Messiah, as Messiah is presenting himself to God's people, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And the city came out and shouted about him. And if you consider that the pinnacle of his popularity, and it's probably fair to do so, what is so stunning is that today is Palm Sunday, Friday he's killed. Zenith of popularity, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, four days later, they're killing him. Stunning reversal. Shocking. Our passage today describes another one of those stunning Jesus messianic moments. The difference with this one is that it hasn't happened yet. It is a future stunner, a future shocker. And this coming moment is going to be entirely different than all the other Jesus comings that there have been, and there have been a few. Jesus was born as a baby. He was born little. He was born uh, in a stable, small, out of the out of the way place. He was born in Bethlehem, a little town. Nobody could believe anything significant would ever come out of Bethlehem. He lived his life in Galilee. Again, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of the north of Israel? He lived in the backwaters, the bayou of Palestine, outside the spotlight. His ministry began, and now suddenly there was a spotlight on him. His miracles, his teaching, people were talking about him, definitely. But he stayed away, largely, from Jerusalem. In spite of this, he was arrested at night. There was a kangaroo court early in the morning. And he was, other than his sentencing and his condemnation, it was all done behind the scenes, behind sort of cloak and dagger. Very few people saw it. He died on the cross very publicly, and he died by crucifixion intentionally to eliminate his future influence in the area. Yet all of this time, in the stable, in Bethlehem, in Galilee, in his ministry, in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the trial, in and on the cross, all of this time simultaneously Jesus is out of the spotlight and ruling and reigning and holding the galaxies by his power, controlling the every atom that's spinning in all of the universe. He is simultaneously nothing and everything. In this world, nothing. But the angels are bowing down to him in heaven. They know who he is. He's the Son of God. We saw previously in 1 Corinthians 15 that God the Father, upon his resurrection and his ascension, gave to him all authority. He said that before he was ascended. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. And we saw in the cosmic gospel this largely transcendent, this big story, that what God is doing is he has, the Father has given to the Son all authority so that he might rule and reign in this world, this physical world, the spiritual world, and project that authority into every inch until 
There is not one spot in this entire universe that there is anybody that is not bowing the knee to Christ. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christos Kyrios, Jesus Christ is Lord. That day is coming and that is the plan. He must reign until every enemy is under his feet, 1 Corinthians 15 has told us. So we live in the land of in-between, between the resurrection and, bef- and before this ultimate, final, all-authority uh, worship. We live in between those two. And so for centuries now, it has been somewhat discouraging, has it not? Because we believe that Christ is reigning at the right hand of God. We believe that all authority is his. We love that verse. We hold to that verse. And yet we look around in the world, and what does it look like? It's not going so good. It's not going so good. Because in the world around us, as every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, hardly. Rather, what we're seeing is the old idols, self and sex and uh, power and autonomy and, and self-love and all the rest, they're worshipped as much, if not more, than they ever have been. And so wait a second, we look at the Bible and we're like, the Bible says that Jesus is ruling and reigning. We look in the world around us and it looks like none of that's going on. In the church, in the gospel, while spreading and growing so anemic in so many ways, this looks like this whole thing is failing. Maybe there's nothing to it after all. Maybe the prophecies aren't going to happen the way that they said. Maybe all authority isn't his. And we could very easily get discouraged living in a world where rather than bowing to the name of Christ, they use it as profanity. And so we ask the question, how can it be? How can it be that someday this will happen when it seems to be so apparently different now? (laughs) Way, way, way different now. And ask this question, where is he? Jesus, where are you? All that talk about coming again, going to be here again. It's about time, I'd say. It's been a long time, a couple millennia. And we hear people around us in First Peter, Second uh, Peter 3 says this will be the case, scoffing and mocking us. Oh, he said he's going to come. You believe in that stuff? It's never going to change. It's always going to be the way that it is. You Christians, so delusional. Resurrection. Well, now that's a good one. Tell me, how will those Christians in Hiroshima be resurrected? They've been vaporized. Their bodies are gone. Tell me, my dear Christian friend who believes so sillily. Is that a word? Probably not. But you're so silly to believe that. You mean, you mean the Apostle Paul who's been dead for 2,000 years? Or better yet, let's go back to Abraham. You're telling me Abraham been dead 4,000 years? That in that body, the bones are gone, the molecules have been eaten by worms, and the worms are eaten by birds, and the birds have flown the atoms, all molecules all over the world. Are you telling me that someday that body's going to be brought back together? What about molecules that have become other people's bodies? How is he going to resurrect both of those at the same time? Whose molecule is it? Whose body does it belong to? The whole thing's just a big fart. Come on now, this is just... What's going on? How can this ever happen? It's not that far off from what was going on in Corinth as we've seen. 
The Corinthians did not believe, as, as a culture, they did not believe in resurrection. They didn't even want resurrection. They believed the best thing, the best day of your life was the day that you got rid of the body. And if they even thought about resurrection, these questions about how a body could live forever was beyond their comprehension. And so Paul continues to address this issue gloriously in the passage that we have before us today. And this is what he has to say. We're just going to walk very systematically through the text, beginning in verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, if you read that passage wrong, you're back to the, uh, the, the old thought that all we are in someday is little spirits floating around in eternity because it says right here, flesh and blood cannot inherit uh, an eternal kingdom. Isn't that what it's saying, Pastor Steve? I mean, if I was just to read that, that's kind of what I would think that it, was be, it would be saying. Well, you need to look a little closer, my dear friend, because it's not exactly what he's saying. Not at all. If there was no way that a body could have an inheritance, that Jesus wouldn't have one because we know that he has a body right now. And further, he's not saying that the physical cannot inherit an eternal inheritance or an eternal kingdom. It is the flesh and blood, meaning that which decays, that which is cursed as a result of the fall, that which is experiencing the decline physically that sin has brought to us. This is, this, is, this is what we see when we look at old pictures of ourselves. This is what we see when we go to a friend's house and we see the high school graduation. And we go, oh, you were so pretty back then. And she's like, thank you. I'm not sure I like what you're insinuating there. But what's insinuating is what is so obviously true. Flesh and blood decay. Flesh and blood that we currently have is perishable. It doesn't last. In fact, the second phrase in that verse clarifies what he's saying in the first. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So what he's saying here, it's not that a body that the physical can't inherit an eternal kingdom. What inherits an eternal kingdom has to be eternal. You can't have a perishable body inheriting an imperishable kingdom. Because that kingdom is going to last forever. How long does the body last? 75 is average, I think, something around there. So if you're going to have an imperishable kingdom, you better have an imperishable body. I think it's helpful maybe to think of it this way. Think of it in a food category. Where with food, as you know, typically you have your non-perishables and you have your perishables. So, for example, our food pantry here at Bethel, we call it the Harvest Market. Uh, and we collect donations from the congregation of various items that we can distribute to those in need. You are not helping us at all if you bring a tuna sandwich or last night's meatloaf. All right? We don't want that. Because why? By the next day... We're not distributing yesterday's tuna salad, right? Because what, what happens to tuna salad? Quickly. It gets 
nasty. And there's nothing worse than the smell of old fish, you know. Fish and company both get old after three days. You've probably heard that phrase. There's a lot of truth to it. What we ask for in our food pantry are non-perishables so that we can put them on the shelf. And over the next weeks, as people have need, we can pull it off the shelf. Here you go. Here's a non-perishable. This will meet the need. We don't want perishables. Perishables go bad. Non-perishables almost last forever. It's not totally true, but you see the point that I'm making. If you treat a perishable item like it is a non-perishable item, you are going to have a real problem, right? For example, several years ago, and I don't remember all the details of this. It's a little bit fuzzy, but as I recall, several years ago, I remember it was at my, it was at my, I've only owned two houses in my life. It was at my old house. So I'll tell you how long ago it was. Uh, I had family that were visiting and I have a mom My mom has one of those female noses that can smell anything. Like if there's a problem on the other side of the county, she's like, something stinks. (laughs) So here comes my family to my house. And my mom's, and she's like. Something stinks. Really? Wow, that's. So we're like, where is that coming from? What is that? You know, have you ever done this at your house where you're like, where is it this? Where's that coming from exactly? Well, our detective work, we're sniffing around and we're slowly working our way towards the kitchen. And we get to the kitchen and then we get to the pantry. And in the pantry, we get back into the back area of the pantry kind of back where you can't really see stuff and it's just like way back we're pulling things and as we are the smell is just getting horrible like absolutely horrible and we finally get down to the bottom of the pantry and there is an empty bag of potatoes now the reason that the bag of potatoes are now empty is, and I didn't know this, but given enough time, did you know that potatoes will liquefy? Did you know that? I have one right here. Given enough time, an entire bag of potatoes will turn to a pasty, nasty liquid. And that's what we found there at the bottom of the pantry. Now, who would have known that? Nobody told me that ever, that you, you know. It would seem to me that a bag of potatoes, I mean, that's a pretty sturdy uh, item. And uh, you would think that that would last a while. You know, it's wrapped. And uh, it would appear to be a long-lasting item. But no, come to find out, it's not. What was I doing there? Well, I'd forgotten that the bag was there in the first place. I think it had been probably a couple years down there. But uh, in a sense, I was treating a perishable item like it was a non-perishable item. If we're going to inherit an eternal kingdom, 
And if our bodies are perishable, well, then we had better get a different kind of body. We need a non-perishable body. So the question then is, well, how's that going to happen? And when is that going to happen? And now we come to a very famous passage of Scripture, and we're just going to walk very slowly through it. Don't look ahead. Okay, don't look ahead. Verse 51, here's what it says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Stop there. Some of you are peeking. Don't peek ahead. I tell you a mystery. Now, this word mystery, it's often in the New Testament. It doesn't mean what we typically mean by mystery, something that is dark, incomprehensible, sort of in the, 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 the world of unknowable. That's not what it means. It means something that up to this point has been unknown, but is now being unveiled or being explained. Behold, I tell you a mystery. I explain to you a mystery. Next phrase. We shall not all sleep. Stop there. We shall not all sleep. Sleep. What is this talking about? Some kind of spiritual insomnia of some kind. What, uh, why would he say we shall not all sleep? Because I don't know about you, but a couple hours I plan to be doing it and we do it every day. Well, here's the thing in the Bible. There is oftentimes the use of the word sleep, describing somebody who is about to be resurrected. Somebody who is about to be resurrected. One day, Jesus went to a home, and he walked into the home, and this was the home of a a home where a little girl had, had died. And in that home, as you can imagine, there were people that had gathered, and they were wailing, and they were grieving, and they were crying. And Jesus walked into that house and he said, why are you all crying? She is not dead. She is sleeping. John 11. Jesus hears about Lazarus being dead. His comment is, he is not dead. He is asleep. Now, was the little girl dead in the, ter- in the way that we would understand death? And like heart had stopped, body functions had stopped. Was Lazarus truly dead? He'd been in the grave for three days. So is it dead or is it sleep? And here's where this is important to understand and so wonderfully encouraging. The Bible does not, u- does not designate a believer who is going to be resurrected as being dead in the absolute sense of the term. Doesn't want to say that. Because death over a body would give death the victory, which we're going to see in two weeks. Christ has come and death has no longer have the victory. So Christians who are going to be resurrected, they don't die in terms of the New Testament. They go to sleep. Their body is asleep, which is a description of a body that has died, but is not going to remain in that condition. They're going to be resurrected. So you don't want to say that they're dead. Absolutely. What word would you come up with to describe a body that is not moving and someday is going to wake up? 
Sleep's a pretty good one, isn't it? Have you noticed this about people who are sleeping? Sneak into their room and look at them. And beyond the sounds that may be coming from them, if you looked at them, their eyes are closed. There's no apparent movement. It would seem that there is n- they're, they're unconscious. There's nobody there. And yet, what happens just sort of dramatically in the morning, suddenly, uh, and there they are, the same person who went to sleep, all the memories of when they went to sleep, same personality as when they went to sleep, now back conscious and the body is moving again. We shall not all sleep. Death is not an accurate description of a Christian body that is going to be resurrected. So Jesus uses sleep. Paul uses sleep. And I think that we need to rejoice that God doesn't call dead Christians dead. We say that again, it's a good line. We need to rejoice that God doesn't call dead Christians dead. Rather, he chooses to call them asleep. They are asleep. He says that we're sleeping. And this is not to suggest, by the way, that when a Christian dies, that they go into a kind of soul sleep. Some people teach that because the Bible also says that the soul of the Christian goes to heaven, goes to be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul, or, yeah, Paul says in Philippians 1, he'd rather go to be with Jesus, which is better by far. So it's not that we just go into a kind of soul sleep, but in terms of the body, that body has gone to sleep. Because it's going to be resurrected. Death is not an absolute statement over it. Death has no ultimate victory. Death has no ultimate claim on that body. Christ has redeemed it. So it's not dead. It's asleep. It's asleep. We shall not all sleep. And like sleep, we will someday awaken the same person we were when we died. Like sleep, we are going to awaken with the same personality. We're going to awake with the same set of memories. We're going to awake with the the same people that died. All of that, like sleep, boom, there we are. We shall not all sleep. We are awaiting a kind of wake-up call. And when is that wake-up call? When does the alarm go off? When do we awaken? Next phrase. But... We shall all be, what's the next word? Changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, if you are fresh to Christian teaching, maybe you're new to, the, to, to Christianity, you might be sitting here tonight, right now, and hearing this for the first time and scratching your head and going, well, what is that talking about? What do you mean the twinkling of an eye? What kind of trumpet? Trumpet. What's this talking about? Well, Very quickly, the twinkling of an eye, the Greek word there is the word for Adam that we get. The smallest, quickest movement is what it means. And so they translate it twinkling because it's one of the, you know, think of an eye. What moves faster in your body than just like, you know, a wink or a blink, you know, boop, boop, just the quickest little movement. That's what the word means. Twinkling of an eye. Last trumpet. Okay, who's blowing that? And what's that all about? Well, there is a parallel passage that fills in the blanks here wonderfully. 1 Thessalonians 4, if you turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians 4 is very similar, but it fills in the uh, 
the gaps here as to what the trumpet is, who's blowing it, who's, what, who's showing up here, and what this whole thing is all about. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Well, that's a familiar word. There it is again. Those who are asleep. A Christian who has died. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Okay, so there is the gospel. Since we are we're believers in the gospel. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, Christ, those who have fallen asleep. All right, well, that's a wonderful truth. Amen and amen. I kind of would like to know some more detail. Like, what's that going to be like when that happens? I'm glad that you asked. Here's what it says. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, in other words, those who are still alive when Jesus returns, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend. Who's the Lord? Jesus. From heaven, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, also known as those sleeping, will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. And so we will be with the Lord always. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now that's an awesome passage, amen? Now let's just figure out what it's saying and how this relates to chapter 15. Both of these are describing a future event, another coming of Christ. And this is also known as the revelation of Jesus Christ, his coming, the day of the Lord. Other descriptions for this, rapture, second coming, the visitation of Christ. And Thessalonians here is filling in what Corinthians doesn't exactly give specifically. Now, first of all, somebody's coming. Who is it? For the Lord himself. The Lord himself. He's not sending a surrogate. He's not delegating it to Michael the archangel. It is Christ himself who is bodily coming back to this earth. Now remember the story here. He's crucified on Good Friday. Let's just walk back through it here. This Friday we're celebrating Good Friday. He's he's crucified on Friday. He's resurrected on, on Sunday, he spends 40 days appearing to more than 500 people we saw earlier in this chapter, showing that he is indeed very much alive. He goes to the Mount of Olives, Acts 1, gives final commands to his disciples. He ascends back to heaven. The disciples are all looking up like this. Two angels are standing next to him going, what are you looking at? He's going to come back the same way that he went. In the meanwhile, do you remember what he said? You're to get busy. You're to be my witnesses. Now get out there and get doing it. And so we have then this promise that the same way that he went is the same way that he's coming back. And what 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 and many other passages are describing is what happens when the king returns. When Christ comes back. 
We see also in this a very important truth, and that is that the kingdom is here, but it's not fully here. I said earlier in my message, we look at this and we go, hey, you know what? I look in the world around us and it doesn't look like Jesus is winning. He's being profaned. He's being mocked. He is not being worshipped. And yet we see in the church and the gospel the fact that the kingdom of God is here, but it is not fully here. The already not yet principle, already here, but not yet all that it's going to be. The return of Christ, this moment, the day of the Lord, when Jesus comes back, is when all of these promises that have been made in the Old Testament, in the words of Jesus about his coming, in the apostles' writings, all of these things saying, this is what it's going to be like, and he's going to come back and establish his kingdom, he's going to rule, and it's going to reign, we're going to reign with him. And we look around, we go, I can't see how it's going to happen right now. Boom! I actually just popped my eardrum doing that right there. I honestly did. Suddenly, suddenly and dramatically, the glory of Christ will fill the sky and envelope the earth. And somehow, the whole earth is going to see him. And he is going to step out from behind the clouds and bodily return and in that moment all of this waiting and anticipating all of this wondering and confusion all of this apparent consternation about why it's going so badly will suddenly be reversed and he will step into this world as king And he will project into this world fully and completely the authority that was given him more than 2,000 years ago. Love that. Love that. And in that moment, the point of 1 Corinthians 15, it doesn't even say that Jesus is coming. I'm adding that here so you know what's going on. It's not really the point that Paul's making here. His point is about the resurrection. And what about the body? And if the perishable needs an imperishable, how are we ever going to get the imperishable? And when is that going to happen? It happens when Christ returns. Because he is, with the command, going to resurrect every Christian that is sleeping and is going to transform those of us who are alive, we will, those who are alive will not be resurrected, but they will be glorified. They will be changed and given that immortal, eternal body that eternal kingdom requires. And this is known as glorification, okay? Glorification. For the perishable body, verse 53, must put on the imperishable And this mortal body must put on immortality. And we see now how this salvation is completed. We are, we are regenerate when we believe in Jesus and we repent of our sins and we become a Christ follower. We are made alive spiritually. We live this Christian life in these days now where we are, 
we are in the process of what is known as sanctification. We're being made holy in our attitudes and our actions. We're being made more and more like Christ from, from one kind of glory to another. We are increasingly growing, or we ought to be growing in our Christian life. But no matter how much we grow, we are still stuck with this body of decay which is inclined towards sin and whose basic fundamental desire is not to do the will of God. And so somehow, if I am ever going to be what God wants me to be, i got to get rid of this thing. When is that going to happen? Right here. The trumpet call of God, the command of Christ the King, reconstituting bodies who've been dead for centuries transforming living bodies into an immortal, glorious, imperishable body fit for a kingdom that will never end. And we will then be joined with him, the Bible says. And so we shall be with him forever in bodies that have been glorified and will be such for all of eternity. And that's when it happens. And that's when Christ wins. And that's when all these things just come together in one glorious moment. And even in that moment, it's all about him. It will, we'll be fascinated with our new bodies. You know, look what I can do, all that kind of stuff. But that is not going to be the point. I read a quote from one of my trusted guys recently. Even a glorified body will not be enough to satisfy the human heart. We're made not for glorified bodies. We are made for God. And he will be our focus and our desire in eternity. But we will be in really awesome bodies. And I spent a lot of time last weekend talking about the 15 characteristics of Jesus' body that we know will be true for ours as well. Regenerated, sanctified, glorified. We will be changed. Now I want to spend just a little bit of time here with you on what this means. Because I'm really happy to get you fired up and I could even kind of get a little bit more rhetorical here and sort of stir up the frenzy here and we could have a pep rally. But once you get out the door, that will fade. Because all of us are going right back to our lives and our homes and our jobs and our families and all the rest. And we can look forward to Christ's return. We can hope that it's going to happen in our life. I personally would prefer no death. I would just like to be changed. That would be my personal preference. I don't know if it's going to happen. But there are profound implications to what this is saying for everyday life. I'd like to share a few of them with you. Number one. Actually, before I give you the number one, why don't you turn over to 2 Peter 3 with me. This whole chapter is describing the, the practical implications of the return of Christ for the daily life of the Christian. And, you know, verses 1 through 7, he just he talks about how Jesus promised that he's coming uh, and everyone, all your friends are going to be looking around and mocking you and saying, oh, it's been so long, it can't be true. And he says, but remember, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Time doesn't mean anything. Just because a lot of time's hat gone doesn't mean the promise isn't true. And then you get all the way to verse 11, and it says this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? in lives of holiness and godliness, 
waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will set on fire and, and, and will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Three categories of practical implication under the title of this main point, which is that our coming resurrection and our bodily eternal life, friends, listen to me, must shape and inform and control and tether how we live today. It has to. Now, let me give you some categories for this. Number one, our priorities. Our priorities. You know, I've heard from people, nothing, and I've, I've read this as well, nothing clears your mind quicker than hearing three words. You have cancer. Some of you know what that's like here in this room. To suddenly have that said to you. Have you ever thought about why that crystallizes the human mind like nothing else? I think it's because of this. Suddenly, what has always been true, we're going to die is brought to bear upon us in a very personal and a very possible way. Every, every young person here, you say, are you going to die someday? Yeah, I suppose so. But how many young people are really thinking about it? How many, how many um, of us in the middle, middle, middle age, middle-aged people really thinking about it? Not too many, I'd say. But when you hear you have cancer, suddenly the truth, it's always been true, is brought to bear in a very real way. The return of Christ, I think, is like that. If I was to ask Christians here, even teenagers in our youth group, because there's such well-taught teenagers in our youth ministries here, hey, is Jesus coming back? Yeah, he's coming back. It's on. Yeah. What difference does that make in your life today? I don't know. Someday. Ah. And as long as this is a kind of ethereal someday, sort of that safety net, get out of jail, don't go to hell kind of a thing, it will not make a whit of difference in our life. And it must. And Peter brings that to bear. Since all of this is going to burn, since this life is temporary, since your body is decaying, it is perishable, what ought to be important to you? Maybe to ask this question, think of your week. Think of the things that you thought about, spent your time on, pursued, worried about, gave your effort, spent your money on. Think of those things. How many of those things are things that really matter? Well, Pastor Steve, how can I know if it really matters? Here's how you can know. If it will matter on the other side of what we're talking about here today, it's something that really, really matters. In the words of Mark Cahill, I remember him saying this, if it doesn't matter in a thousand years, it doesn't matter. And how easily our priorities get all wrapped up in the things that are temporary and fleeting. And we forget, oh yeah, oh yeah, he's coming again. Oh yeah, this body's going to die. Oh yeah, my time is short. We're a mist here and then gone. Oh yeah. And that has to shape, it must shape the priorities that we revolve our life around. Does it for you? And maybe this will prompt some thoughts for you in this regard. Secondly, is our ethics, 
our ethics. And I think this is really the focus of what Paul is saying. Since all these things are going to happen, what sort of lives ought you to live? Does he say, hey, since it's all going to burn up anyway, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Go have a great time. Live in whatever way that you want. It doesn't matter. No, he says the opposite. We are to live lives in holiness and godliness. There are ethical implications here, friends, and important ones. You know, we can't say this. Oh, I can't wait for the day when my body doesn't sin. I can't wait for the day when I live in a kingdom where everything's pure and everything's done according to the will of God. I can't wait for that day. But until that day comes, I'm going to live for everything I can in this life. And I'm going to love sin. And I'm going to get everything I can now. Because I can get it now and I can get it then. What? If you're going to love righteousness then, you're going to love it now. If you're anticipating the purity of the eternal kingdom, then you're going to want it now. And the ethical implications of the priorities of the future kingdom for God's people are that we want them now and we long for them. We've had a tough season here at the church. Tough time. Lots of ethical righteousness matters that we've been dealing with. Prompts me just to say how important it is that God's people pursue holiness in their life. And I'm not talking about perfection. We are sinners. Sinners. But if our sin doesn't war with our soul and doesn't war with the way that we want to be, then there is something desperately wrong. If you get the gospel, you want to live a holy life. Finally, is our longings. You know, this whole section here is celebration. And we're going to get the rest of the celebration. And it's going to be two weeks from now, don't miss. Don't miss Easter. Don't miss the week after. The rest of them, whatever you want. Uh, No, I'm kidding. God wants you here every weekend. Anyway, um, pastoral side, uh, our, our, we're going we're gonna to talk about the celebration because Paul moves from this passage and he starts saying this. Hey, listen, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? God, praise be the victories in Jesus. It's a, it's a party passage. It is a party passage, definitely. And there's good stuff to come. But I just don't think Paul could conceive of a Christian that doesn't long to be done with this body of sin. Doesn't look forward to the day when I'm not living in this world with all the junk that's going on. Who who doesn't want to get over that battle that we have with desires that war against our flesh. We don't want those things. We look forward, we ought to look forward to seeing Christ come. Now I grew up in a, in a, in a time where there was a lot of fascination with end times and I grew up in a kind of pond of Christianity where there's a lot of fascination with this, but in some kind of weird ways actually. And, and I remember going to youth group events and they would show movies about Jesus coming and it was sort of dark and murky and fearful. And, and, you know, at the end they turn the lights on and say, you don't want to be left behind except Jesus, you know, that kind of thing, or this, you're going to go through this. And, and it was just like, it was like, 
do you want Jesus to come and you'd watch the movie and be like, no, it's going to be bad, you know. And, and so there is, I think, this kind of mindset. And whenever the U.S. goes to war or some major, you know, uh, dictator rises and you just you feel it in the evangelical church. Oh, no, it might be the end, you know. What if it's the end? And I want to say, bring it on, you know. Come on, let's be done with this. And I, you know, in my heart, I have little fears like that too. But you know what I'm saying? That's the way that we ought to be. This is a good thing. It is the blessed hope of Christ's return. It's not a bad thing. I'll tell you another thing. We oftentimes think about the return of Christ and, and it's easy for us to be like, oh, I'm, am I looking forward to that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But then in our hearts, there's this kind of thinking where we're like, well, I... I hope it's after blank, you know, I hope it's after I graduate, you know, I I hope it's after I get married, I hope it's after I can have sex, I hope it's after I can have kids, I, I hope it's after I get to have my career, I hope it's after maybe I get to see my grandkids, walk my daughter down the aisle, whatever it is, and we kind of, we put these things in the blank and the thought is this. Ideally, I would get to live my life in this sort of affluent America where I get to have these things that I've really, really wanted in my life. And then right before I get the diagnosis of having the disease or the cancer, that's when I want Christ to come. Because I don't want to suffer and I don't want to die. So Jesus, if you're listening to me, I'd like to go through all of those things, experience the best in this life, and then I'd like for you to come. And friends, listen, that is so I can't, I don't even know what word to call. It's just wrong. It is wrong. Here's why. The very best that this life has to offer, the best thing that you could put in the blank, pales in comparison with what every moment in this future body experience with Jesus, new heaven, new earth, is going to be like. No one in heaven is going to be like, oh, he came a little early. I wish... I so wish you would have delayed it a little bit. Everybody in eternity is going to be saying, I wish he would have come sooner. Unless his coming sooner would have meant me not coming to faith in Christ. Well, now there won't be anybody saying that. And that's why it is his patience. That it, it, his patience means that all will be saved. He will not lose one of his sheep, not one. And when all are in the fold, then he comes. Then he comes. And so we conclude by simply saying, in the final words of the Bible, even so, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. We're tired of this world, tired of this body, ready for glory. We used to sing a song. It went like this. Oh, that will be Glory for me, glory for me, glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory, be glory for me. Would you sing that with me as a conclusion here today? Why don't you stand to do so?